Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We often see two responses to pain. We either ignore it or we become trapped by it. We have a denial towards our pain or we live in the despair of it. However, Exodus points us in a third direction. And in that direction is the glory of God. You're listening to Glory in the Wilderness by guest minister, Reverend Scott Jose. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. And I was grateful to be invited to be with you in worship and to lead you in God's word and the sacrament this morning, along with my colleague, Christy. Greetings to you from Calvin Seminary and our president, Joe Maidblick. Uh, we appreciate your prayers for us as we continue to equip men and women for ministry in God's church and kingdom. We're turning to the second book of the Bible this morning, to Exodus at the 16th chapter. I'll be reading uh, the first 18 verses from Exodus chapter 16. Please pray with me. Your word, O God, is alive. We know that because when we read it, your spirit testifies to our spirits that we are encountering a living voice, yours. We pray that may be so now, and we pray it through Jesus, the Word made flesh. Amen. Exodus 16, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and the Sinai. This is on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. And in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he heard your grumbling against him. And who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he's heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert. And there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And that evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? They didn't know what it was. But Moses said to them, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. 
And the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the Omer, the one who gathered much didn't have too much. And the one who gathered little didn't have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And we give thanks to God for his holy word. In Aldous Huxley's novel, Brave New World, Huxley imagined that in the future, all of society would be massively engineered to avoid suffering. And hence, the people in this brave new world tend to be placid, unflappable, seemingly happy. And yet they cannot survive physically without the adrenaline that gets pumped into our systems whenever we are afraid or in pain. And so to make up for their lack of normally produced adrenaline, the people of Huxley's future receive monthly adrenaline injections. And Huxley is basically saying that a suffering-free state of placidness is not just unhealthy, it may actually be subhuman. On the other hand, we could ponder the character of Miss Havisham from Charles Dickens' classic novel, Great Expectations. See, years before, Miss Havisham had been jilted on her wedding day. The groom never showed up. And ever since, Miss Havisham has shut herself up in a dark house in the very room where the wedding reception was to have taken place. She's a very old lady now, but she still wears her wedding dress, now tattered and smelly and yellowed with age. Her wedding cake still sits on the buffet table, now desiccated and rotten and rat-eaten. The clock on the wall is stopped at the exact hour and minute when the wedding was to have begun. Miss Havisham is a woman frozen in time, trapped by her suffering. So here are two literary images that detail two possible responses to suffering. We can try to avoid suffering altogether, pretend it's not real, and so lead a lifelong pursuit toward a pain-free existence of bliss. Or we can become so walloped by our pain and disappointment in life that, that we become trapped by them. And probably we all know people who fit one of those two categories. If we thought about it, we could think of someone we know who has never shed a tear in our presence, who is always sunny side up, whose response to even a genuinely terrible event is always to say, don't worry about me, I'm fine. Then again, we may know someone who gnaws on an unhappy past event like a dog with a bone. If you spend more than three minutes talking to Robert, you will all but certainly hear how rotten life has been to him and how he got cheated out of something way back in 1966 and nothing's ever been the same since. Denial and despair. But are those the only two possible responses and reactions to the fact that life, each person's life, contains its fair share of hard knocks, letdowns, disappointments, and flat-out tragedies? Is there a third way to respond to suffering? Well, Exodus 16 is an early biblical hint that there is such a third way. It is the way of growth, of maturity, of trusting in God, even when, or maybe it's especially when, the bottom drops out. 
and it is the way of just possibly finding a deeper and stronger faith in God as a result. See, if you back up one chapter in Exodus from what I just read a few moments ago, if you go back to Exodus 15, you will see the people of Israel singing and dancing on the shores of the Red Sea. After that, they then enjoy a mini stretch of paradise in a pretty place called Elam. But the march toward redemption couldn't end in Elam. A trek through the wilderness has to come first, and no sooner does that journey begin, and we find in Exodus 16 a nearly reverse portrait of the celebration and joy of the previous chapter. Sounds of timbrel singing and dancing have been replaced with sounds of muttering, grumbling, and the shuffling of sandaled feet through scorching sand. And the result is a little uh, historical revisionism on the part of the people. Suddenly Egypt looms very large on their mental horizons, but Egypt is suddenly no longer the house of bondage. It's not the place where taskmasters wielded cruel whips and where Hebrew babies floated dead in the Nile River. No, 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 no. Now Egypt transforms into kind of a, a deluxe resort, a veritable club med of a place. The hunger in their bellies tricks their minds into remembering nothing about Egypt except pâté de foie gras, roast veal of tender, tenderloin of veal and a Merlot reduction sauce, caramelized cauliflower, orange scented creme brulee. And so they complain to Moses, who tells the people they're really complaining directly to God, to Yahweh himself, so they best watch their step. And indeed, Yahweh hears the people. But curiously enough, doesn't speak a harsh word here. True, God says he will yet find a way to test the people, but at this early stage of Israel's desert wanderings, God doesn't seem to blame the people for being hungry for some good food. Because God knows the wilderness is a place of death. In fact, in the Bible, the wilderness is usually described through the same Hebrew words that were used to describe the pre-creation chaos in Genesis 1 verse 1. Tohu vabohu, formless, void, chaotic. Now in the creation, God shoved that chaos aside to create cosmos. But then sin came and chaos made a comeback. Some of those good creation barriers God had set in place began to erode. And nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament, for that matter, um, can that return of chaos be seen more clearly than in the desert wastes. The wilderness was the place where the devil ran wild, where the demons howled, where human life was threatened at every quarter. The wilderness was a place of death. It's also the path that the Israelites need to take to get to the promised land. But as commentator Terence Fretheim has written, in the heat of the desert, there would be many occasions when the very hope of the promised land would begin to shimmer like a desert mirage. People's faith would erode with the shifting sands while their dreams tattered along with their tents and the scorching desert winds. And so, not surprisingly, the people complain. This is not what they'd signed on for. 
This did not look like the promised land travel brochures Moses and Aaron had shown them back in Egypt. They were tired, hot, thirsty, hungry. And they needed to know if it was possible that God was with them in this dreadful place. And on this occasion, anyway, God seems only too happy to shower the people with provisions. But but in the midst of all that, in Exodus 16, verse 10, we encounter what may well be one of the most startling and vivid verses in the whole Bible. It's a verse that should be written in large letters over top of each one of our hearts. Because the people of Israel are hurting. They're hungry. They're not afraid. And because the people of Israel are hurting and hungry, it's getting bad enough that they've swiveled around and they're looking back toward the West. They're looking back toward Egypt. Back toward Egypt, which had for better or worse, for a very, very long time, been their home. So what happens in verse 10? Well, the Lord God himself gently takes the people by their shoulders and swivels them away from the West toward the East, toward the great and terrible wilderness. And when they look into the wilderness, what do they see? They see the glory of the Lord. Now just let that sink in a minute. They looked into the hard times of life, and that is where they saw God. They weren't to look for God back in Egypt. And yet when peering into the place of death, they saw glory. And they would see that glory in the wilderness new every morning through the manna. God would feed his people the bread of heaven, even though they themselves were not in heaven, but in kind of a living hell on earth. But for some reason, the wilderness would be the cradle in which God would nourish and nurture his people toward a greater maturity. But why? Why bring the people here? Why did God show his glory in the wilderness? Well, perhaps to foster greater dependence and trust. Because, you know, in the hard times of life, all of our normal supports get knocked out from underneath us. So also for Israel, if the people were going to go on, it would only be because the Lord was with them. And that's why they couldn't stockpile the manna, by the way. I mean, think of it this way. If your retirement portfolio is rich and fat and full and in fine fiscal shape, how much time do you spend praying about it? Or if if your cupboards and pantry and refrigerator and freezer are all well stocked back at home, you may not know what you're going to have for dinner tonight, but you won't spend any time praying that you may eat it all. See, in the wilderness, God showed his glory morning by morning so that ideally there would never be a day when anyone had any cause to doubt why he or she was alive. We tend to think of the manna only as a gift. But if you notice in our passage, when God first mentions it, he says it's mostly a test. Will they, can they, rely on God? Now, nobody wants to suffer. And only sick masochists actively pursue hurts and pains. And all things being equal, the Lord God didn't create us to suffer either, of course. I mean, he didn't send Adam and Eve into the paradise of Eden under the promise of hunger and want. 
But in the post-Eden world, sickness, want, hunger, loss, and death are realities. Well, that's not very good news, but there is some good news, some comfort to be found in the thought that none of those things cause God to abandon you. None of us purposely moves out into the wilderness, but sometimes we get cast out there anyway, and then the question becomes, well, now what? Now what? Will I just deny this pain? Act like it's no big deal? Well, I get trapped in this pain and so curdle into a lifelong deep bitterness. Or, in and through my understandable laments and weeping, will I nonetheless look for the glory of the Lord to be real, revealed to me even here in this hellish place of death and sorrow? Now, I'm not trying to be simplistic in framing it this way. I myself am no stoic, no saintly hero who finds it easy to look for God when I'm hurting. And I'm not above thinking some rather dark, grim, and unspiritual thoughts when I'm in a rather scorching place of life. And when someone tries to say to me something along the lines of, well, God's building more character in you, Scott, my first reply is, well, then I'll do with a little less character. Thank you very much. And let me be honest enough to admit that I haven't been through some of the deep wilderness valleys some of you have been through and in which some of you are this very morning. Sooner or later, sorrow finds us all. Sooner or later, something happens that we never saw coming. I mean, we were just sure 20, 30 years ago that we were entering the right career path. It never worked out. We wanted our kids to be as happy and stable and settled as the children of so many other families we know, but somehow or another, two out of our three kids got divorced, and every time we see that pain in the eyes of our grandchildren, it about kills us. You thought you could trust Cindy at work, but first chance you got, she destroyed your reputation with the boss and then took your job after you got fired. Well, we don't choose the wilderness path, but so many of our lives end up trekking right straight through it anyway. It's a hard world. So please don't hear me as being trite. There are no pat answers. There are no easy solutions. And there are no quick escape routes out of the desert wastes where we sometimes find ourselves. All I can say is that to those who are willing to look long and hard into the wilderness, there is that possibility of seeing the glory of the Lord even so. Because do you remember what happened first thing to the one called Jesus? You know, if crossing through the Red Sea was kind of like Israel's baptism, so we can also remember Jesus' baptism in the waters of the Jordan River. And do you recall the utterly vivid and startling way, especially the Gospel of Mark, presents that scene? Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism. He comes up out of the waters only to have the Holy Spirit descend upon him like a dove. But then suddenly that dove transmogrifies into sort of a, a raptor bird with strong and fierce talons. 
And immediately, Mark tells us, in an instant, as soon as Jesus came out of the water, that, that, that bird grabbed Jesus and hurled him headlong into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation and hunger and danger. Immediately. Just like for Israel. So often after baptism comes wilderness trials. You know, the great preacher Fred Craddock once noted that the disciples turned apostles performed what Craddock calls a majestic flip-flop. You see, all along, the Jews who were waiting for the Messiah, they summed up their anticipation with the phrase, when the Messiah comes, no suffering. You see that person over there all shriveled up with arthritis and in constant pain? Well, when the Messiah comes, you won't see that anymore. When the Messiah comes, no suffering. You, you see that blind man, that, that crippled woman, that, that broken family? Well, when the Messiah comes, you won't see that. When the Messiah comes, no suffering. But then the disciples turned apostles met the true Messiah in Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one. And so they ended up doing a theological flip-flop, a reversal, as they ended up proclaiming that from now and until he comes again, wherever there is suffering, that's where you find the Messiah. Where there is suffering, Messiah. My daughter, Juliana, is 29 now. But 25 or so years ago, she got suddenly sick across a couple days, dragging her one foot at first a bit, then limping, then experiencing serious pain in her ankle. Two trips to urgent care yielded no answers, and the pain was getting worse. Finally got in to see our own pediatrician, who very swiftly diagnosed a life-threatening osteomyelitis, an infection of the ankle joint that needed swift treatment. And so began uh, a little more than a week-long stay in the hospital, replete with horrible needle aspirations of her little ankle joint and round-the-clock IV antibiotics. Well, four or so days into her hospitalization was a Sunday, and though my elders probably offered to give me the morning off, I, I chose to preach anyway. You know, you're a preacher, it's what you do. But my heart and mind were elsewhere. I was so tired. After the service, though, I was greeted by a gaggle of three- and four-year-olds out in the church narthex. They, they were members of my daughter's children and worship class, and with the teacher's help, they had made this giant get-well card. All the kids had dipped their hands into paint and then pressed them up against the cardboard, and the teacher had written over the top, Juliana, you are in God's hands. And suddenly, in all those little patty prints, I saw the glory of the Lord at church, of all places. Now, we were still in a hard place. She'd be in the hospital for quite a few more days, and then she'd have surgery to put an IV port in, and then we had three weeks of infused antibiotics every six hours. But, but through those little kids, I saw the care and the glory of the Lord after all. And so many of you have that same story to tell, don't you? The card that came in the mail at just the right moment, the out-of-the-blue Facebook message that gave you a lift when you were going through a bad patch. The person who showed up on your doorstep with a potato chip-crusted tuna casserole just to say she cared. 
It's all the glory of the Lord in the wilderness. See, Jesus has been to the wilderness, and so he's still there when we arrive there as well. Oh, it's still a disorienting place. The demons still howl into our ears, and we may well discover all kinds of reasons to question our faith, to wish for a change, or just generally the temptation to go back west, back toward Egypt, you know, wherever Egypt is for you. But the Spirit of God turns us eastward toward the suffering. And in the end, somehow and against all odds, he reveals to us the glory of the Lord. We don't need to deny the reality of hurts in life. And we don't need to let suffering have the last word on everything either. Because if by the grace of God, we can discover the love of Jesus made the more vivid to us, even in the wilderness then we we may yet find reason to give glory to God as he leads us along to that better country that just is the kingdom of God. Please pray with me. Lord our God, for your Holy Spirit, for your faithfulness, for your promises, we are grateful. And for anyone here this morning who is in a wilderness place, may you, O Lord, make your presence large and plain and unmistakable to their eyes of faith. Do so also at this table where we remember what the wilderness finally did to you and what you did for us to deliver us through your sacrifice. We are so grateful. We pray it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.